This is My Rank Edges Busted, a podcast produced by Agriculture Victoria. I'm Gemma Pearl, and here we talk about all things climate and farming. This episode is part two of our discussion with Think Agri's Kate Burke. In part one, Dale Gray, Graham Anderson and I asked Kate about seasonal risk decision-making and what her tips are from her more than 30 years' experience. In this episode, we talk about making decisions with uncertainty and the different business structures that can assist with spreading risk. Graham summed it up before, it's humans making decisions. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was because I felt the human component of advice wasn't getting through in the technical publications in industry. And the human component of advice probably wasn't even getting a lot of airplay, um, you know, at at seminars and, and things. I wanted to join that link up that the impact that uncertainty has on the way you think and on your neuroscience, the impact that trauma has, let's face it, you know, floods, droughts, they're, they're traumatic conditions. So then that affects your ability to make good decisions. And it also explains why, and this is, um, you know, I probably spent the first 15 years of my career and on the first five years of my consulting career getting frustrated that people couldn't take the emotion out and just follow my logic. And we hear that from advisors all the time and from extension officers and from scientists. And logic's fine, but we've got this emotional part of the brain that keeps hijacking the logical part. And um, you know, weather makes us emotional. Like they've been writing poems about the emotion of weather for 150 years. So, but the really cool thing is the science of the brain says that if you actually put data in front of you it helps your brain access the logical side of your brain and it actually can calm down the emotional side of the brain so i remember reading an article by this guy called travis bradbury about uncertainty and and this research that he was quoting and it really that's when it made me think right that's why it's worth people need to understand this that why it's good for them to not just rely on gut feel and intuition and that gut feel and intuition are fantastic when your brain's tracking along well but if you're stressed or in a state of high emotion your your intuition can sometimes trick you kate you've understood and you help lots of businesses manage the the um the you know dealing with seasonal variability and making the most of good years and and um, and uh, limiting risks in the tricky years. And you're also across a bit of what's sort of lining up for us in terms of climate change. So just wondering, have you got any thoughts about, um, is there anything different farms should be trying to set up for apart from just trying to, to do good management of seasonal variability if they're trying to set up their farm for the next 20 years of, of, of what what we understand might come with climate change. Any, any thoughts? Yeah, look, a really good question. And, and again, I think it goes back to, I suppose, the three A's of awareness, acceptance and action, or you might even call it four A's, awareness, 
a grants acceptance or awareness acceptance of grants and action. And what I mean by that is it's your farm, so it's your responsibility to make sure you're aware of the possibilities of what could happen in the next 20 years in terms of your rainfall variability and your temperature exposure. So again, using the, the data analogues that are being produced by people like yourselves and CSIRO and some of the universities, it's useful to know that Echuca could look like Deniliquin in a few years' time and then further down the track it could look like Griffith. And so that gets me thinking, well, what do I need to do on my 300-acre block if, um, if I'm going to have a climate like Denny? That's the first thing is just be aware of the possibilities and accept them. Someone said the other day that um, unfounded optimism is not leadership, it's actually denial. There was a lady called Susan David and um, I think we've seen a lot of unfounded optimism in other aspects of our life and leaders in recent times. So that's the first bit is awareness and and then acceptance and righto, now we've got to get on with the job. So we don't really know what that job is yet, but there, there are a couple of the things. The first thing I think is to make sure you've got a really highly operational and profitable business. And then what do highly operational and profitable businesses look like in the areas um, that you might be farming in? So, you know, Wimmera farmers are really starting to farm like Mallee farmers anyway nowadays, uh, particularly in when they see dry years coming. So that's, a, that's an example. I think the tricky bit is this a grants bit before you decide what actions you're going to take. If there's multiple business partners in your business and your advisors, and for some people climate change is still a political beast and, and and, and some people might not quite be there yet. And there might be a generational gap. So the the 30-year-old in the business, you know, learn about it at uni, the 20-year-old learn about it at school, yet the 60-year-old might still see that that's something associated with, you know, a political flavour they're not that keen on. So getting through all that to the grants bit, to make meaningful change for a business, you know, that's part of it. And then there's the action bit. So there's the actions in individual years and there's the actions in the future. And it could be some, you know, we're seeing it already. Some people are shifting and or buying land in different places or or changing the way their enterprise looks. But I think if we follow that, that sort of, um, I guess, just think about awareness, acceptance, grants and action, we can get through anything really. Great observations and comment there because, you know, the world's still going to need food. And, and when, we, when we look in different climates, we see people farming successfully. So it's not actually the climate that determines whether someone's having a, a great time of it or not. It's about, you know, these other things. So, But it, it will change over the time. It's just sort of learning as we go. Surround yourself with good people. And, um, uh, and like I said, I think we were talking on one of the other podcasts with Gemma, just even... The things that are in our favour, such as just improved forecasts and things like now on our on our phones, we've got you know a pretty reasonable seven day forecast that farmers thirty years ago would have just dreamt of. Some technology that had the week's weather 
in your pocket. Amazing. We've got so many good tools around and, and, and I think you know, it's silly not to use them and use them well. Using them well doesn't mean looking up every 10-day forecast until, the, until you find the one you want. Using them well means making sure all your paddock records are up to date, for example, and that you've actually done an analysis compared to your potential yield, um, that you understand you know, that you've got some soil moisture probes and, and you know what's going on and you're linked into the weather stations that are around. They're all the things we can do really well. And, and you're dead right about um, wherever you farm, people can make money. It's just about understanding the system required for that climate and, and doing it well. And, and I think one other aspect relates back to before we we're talking about intuition and 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 using information. A trap for young players is to look at the older, whether it's older advisors or older farmers who have got 30 or 40 seasons under their belt, and they're, they're making lots of intuitive decisions in their head, and they're actually pretty good at it because they've got a filing cabinet of 40 years. If you're a young agronomist who's got a filing cabinet of two years, it's actually really risky for you to be making all those decisions in your head. And if you're a young farmer with a filing cabinet of two years, it's also really risky to be making all those decisions in your head without any data because you don't have that internal intuition that comes out with positive outcomes. A lot of it comes from experience. So it's, I think it's really important to, to just understand, for, for younger listeners to understand that it's worth the discipline and making the effort to use good tools that are available to us now. As Kate mentions, having the data to help make decisions is really important. We asked how important was having soil test information and why have we seen a drop-off in their use? A very good question. And I'm being quiet because I'm trying to add up the years that I've been working. What are we in? 22. So... 32 years and I still don't have the answer to this. Human nature, it's discipline. It, it's about discipline. Um, ultimately, it's, it's a choice of an individual to take on that practice. And unfortunately, in, in advisor land and agronomy land, um, there's a big shift away from soil testing. So when the top crop and maximum economic yield may check programs were strong, when Pivot was doing soil testing and wasn't charging for it, um, you know, charging for the sampling but not the, sorry, charging for the analysis but not the sampling, it used to be a lot more done. Human nature is if you have a neg- if you don't want to do something, you can rationalise why you shouldn't do it. So the one time we got a bad result, that has then convinced us that we shouldn't do it for the next 30 years. And unfortunately, you know, so there was a lot of misinformation out there. I think, I'm not sure whether soil testing has has picked up in recent years, but I am finding it seems to me that people have got the nitrogen message in the last few years and, and have got better at it. I hope that with one one good thing about higher input costs is it does give people the motivation to to do more soil sampling and soil testing. Look, and it's not perfect, but I think, you know, 
the, the famous economist John Keynes said that um, it's better to get the whole roughly right than part of it precisely wrong. Soil testing results I've looked over the years, just the variability within a farm, you'd have the same paddock history, but the, you know there could be 100 kilos per hectare of urea equivalent different between one paddock and another. So you think about that in today's prices, like it's, it's huge. So we've got an allocation of capital that needs to go into our nutrition let's make sure it gets in the right spots rather than, than making broad assumptions, I reckon. We always love talking about agronomy and weather, but in your observation and, and in your book, dealing with a lot of different farms, what are the key things you think that make a successful farm business or farm family business? Because often we can spend most of our time talking about agronomy and what needs spraying and what needs doing and all that operational stuff and tactical stuff. But... Um, just in your observation, what, what are the things that, that stand out for those businesses that impress you in terms of how they go about it all? Yeah, real, really good good question, and I guess I'll answer it on the basis of not just observation but a lot of research um, and, and collation of other people's research, both qualitative and quantitative. And it, it comes down to three themes, really, and that's... Those three themes result around evolve around the title of the book, Crops, People, Money, and the whole of the system. So the businesses that really impress me see the farm as a whole. Whether they know they're doing that or not, they do that. They um, are the type of person who is good at relationships and that helps them get things done. They're really good at logistics, so their timing's good, their management's good, their organisation is good. They're technically strong, so they understand why they need to do what they need to do and when. And in terms of business structures and, and finance structures, their, um, their level of capital expenditure and their overheads is commensurate to the size of the business. So they're not overly geared with machinery on a, you know, a thousand acres, for example, um, but they're not under geared on 5,000 acres and they're losing timing. So they get that balance right in terms of fixed costs. And probably the most critical factor is that they recognise that it's their farm and that they're the ones responsible for the actions on that farm. So they're not the type that changes agronomists every four years or bankers every five years. Yeah, they own their decisions and they're good to work with. Uh, they get advice. And they've got that capacity basically to work through the decisions and work as a team. So that's it in a nutshell, really. Crops, people, money and you, the art of excellent farming. I had one that I wanted to explore, which was, was the concept of a business or a farming system being what's termed anti-fragile so when something happened it doesn't break it's actually robust sort of system and it can cope with all sorts of things and historically we've seen mixed farms quite capable of that um, but more so in you know I think there's a lot of continuous croppers who believe that their system can do you have any sort of personal thoughts about either of those different ways of farming and what might be better or is it really a case that some farmers are good at it and some aren't. <laughs> Getting into dangerous territory there. Um, 
So anti-fragility, really good term, robustness, a very good term. And thanks for the reminder because one of the characteristics of the farms that impress me is they do have that robusticity built into their business so that they can handle production shocks or financial shocks or personal shocks. Basically, the higher the cost structure of running your business, the bigger the buffer you need sitting behind you to be able to manage that risk if things don't go well. And in terms of, you know, mixed farming versus um, crop-only farming, I think it depends on, on, on what else is going on in the back end of the business. And it also depends on, on where you're farming. So there's been some really good research done over the years, both modelling and real data, that, that indicates that you know, that last 10% of crop land is it really escalates the the input costs and depending on where you're farming that you know that can be problematic so there's a reason why you know in certain areas it makes more sense not to crop every paddock every year and and that's just down to the principle of diminishing returns that your first dollar gives you more value than the last dollar you spend on on something so, so I do worry sometimes on, on some businesses that are persisting with uh, cropping every paddock every year. I think you don't necessarily have to have livestock in your system to have an anti-fragile farm. We had plenty of examples that just manage that by lowering their crop intensity, which then lowers the, the, the cost base. I've seen fantastic livestock in cropping mixed enterprises and I've observed, you know, some not so good ones. So again, that comes down to this whole concept of the farm effect that statistically the difference between performance uh, of farms in an area, the biggest variable is all the characteristics that make up the individual farm rather than it. So in other words, it's not what they do, it's how they do it. Decision-making is not a skill we are necessarily born with. Kate explains how important it is to be disciplined in seeking information and considering the consequences, even if the outcomes are unsavoury. It's really interesting and having the ability to see forward and see possibilities clearly is actually not that common a trait. So you sort of have to teach yourself to do it. Um, if you do something like the Clifton Strengths Finder, there's one characteristic called possibilities, and and in the type of um, personality that a lot of farmers are, it's not a common strength. So they're more likely to see what's there right now in front of them. A lot of the guys and girls that uh, have that natural ability to think three months ahead or four months ahead and and think through the options not only the logistics um you know it's a really good trait to have it takes a while to get through that like it's a it's a human human nature and a you know it's a survival mechanism not to think about stuff that can hurt you our brains are still working on the same evolution, you know, thousands and thousands of years. 
So although we have all the data now that we can look at all these different possibilities, our brains are still saying to us, oh, oh, frost, oh, oh, no, that's bad. So we don't want to go down there. If we go, if we go over and touch that tiger, it might eat my hand off. So, so it, it takes discipline, it takes courage and discipline to go down that path. And I think we saw that this year where the frost event, frost is probably the last, I think we're getting good at that now in terms of thinking about rainfall and, you know, various potential yields. I think we've still got a way to go when it comes to frost, particularly when you can see the potential in front of you. And I haven't fell into this trap myself a bit this year, trying to convince myself that, well, the temperatures really need to be below zero, not just below two. And and then, you know, once you actually get out there and start looking, you think, oh, dear. But the, there was a lot of they're still getting nasty surprises at harvest um, and that's because we're not thoroughly investigating and and um, in some sort of a logical, methodical way what's happening out in the paddock in terms of frost damage. So, silence in the bin, Kate, is not the time you should be first knowing you've got a problem. <laughs> No, it's not, and but it's understandable. It's human nature. So I think that's where, um, again, it, it's really, it's the advisors. I, I do see it as one of the advisors' role is to sort of nudge people towards thinking about the things they don't want to think about, and and let them know. Look, we're seeing a lot of frost in the area. Um, how about we catch up and go and have a look at um, the frog paddock because. It's Every year we've had every year we've had a, a there's been frost around that's been your worst paddock, or if you don't know the farm that well, it might be, you know, hey Jan, I'm seeing a lot of frost around. Are there paddocks where you've had difficulties with frost in the past? Would you like me to go and have a look, or you know, let's get your yield maps out from from the last time you had a frosty year or, you know, things like that. It's just inviting that conversation. And ultimately it's up to the individual to, to um, yeah, it's up to the individual business owner and manager to, to take that next step and, and start to be more methodical about it. I think, Kate, if we were honest, not every agronomist would like doing that job either. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah, they're thinking of the potential repercussions of finding something that's, you're right, there's literally no joy in doing that. But ultimately, if you're helping people make better decisions, that, that's, that's, that's good. Yeah. Look, and I found myself in that, obviously I don't do traditional agronomy anymore, but I did find myself out in paddocks and got a real surprise in a certain district late last year and and I was a bit shocked as to what I saw and I was you know there was a couple of crops that were really badly impacted by by frost so I did ring around you know some friends and and some other clients and just sort of nudged them back out to have another look and you know we found some good stuff and some not so good stuff but what 
and luckily, because we had such a soft finish and and a bit more rain, you know, there was some enormous compensation in lentils in in some areas. But I, you know, I, I just couldn't not do it, even though um, it wasn't necessarily my role in that situation. We really appreciate Kate joining us on not one but two episodes. Dale Graham and I definitely enjoyed spending time and learning from Kate's years of experience. We explore the concepts mentioned in this episode further in an upcoming episode with Cam Nicholson. In the show notes, you can find more information and links to decision-making. You can also get in contact with us at the.break at agriculture.vic.gov.au. Thank you for listening to My Rain Gauge is Busted. For more episodes in this series, find us and follow wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear your feedback, so please leave a comment or rating and share this with your friends and family. All information is accurate at the time of release. Contact Agriculture Victoria or your consultant before making any changes on farm. This podcast was developed by Agriculture Victoria and the tribe. O-S-O-I-N-S-S-T's And what on earth is an IOD? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date, get the break Oh, this bloke Dale, he's rich, he did. He knows about the subtropical ridge The science comes in a secret code But he knows about the southern annular mode Well, this SST anomaly Lead us to a death cell of one, two, three The Nino 3 and Nino 3.4 Well, I've never heard of these terms before About S-O-I-N-S-S-T's And what on earth is an IOD? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date and get the break. Or keep your eyes out for Enso. Will it rain then? If so, when so? The farmers need you to be specific. What's happening out in the Pacific? Well, westerly wind bursts blow away. All our hopes of that rainy day. And will this year bring an El Nino? Come on, tell us, Dale. Because we have to know about SOIs and SSDs. What on earth is an IOP? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date, get it right. Oh, SOIs and SSDs. 